my bloods have high severely high levels of antibodies which makes it difficult for me to um, be matched for kidney transplant so I'm a my case in particular uh, makes me very difficult to match so I'm on multiple lists um, and the reality being uh, given the uh, the state of organ donation in our country is the likelihood that I will um, receive a match, while it isn't impossible, it's quite unlikely. So what that has done to sort of my existential reflection has kind of forced me to accept the possibility that dialysis will be, um, you know, my companion for the rest of my life, uh, for the rest of my living life. I'm Juita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. How often do you think about dialysis? Dialysis is a life-maintaining process and it is prevalent in our communities. However, few people know much, if anything, about the process or the impact on patients. It can be deeply isolating living with a chronic illness and dealing with a medical process that can take up a lot of time and energy. Despite advancements in treating kidney disease, the number of Canadians receiving dialysis has nearly doubled in the last 20 years. And for each person who goes to a hospital for dialysis treatment or administers a procedure themselves at home, there is an individual story of grief, resilience, and confronting the odds. Today, we discuss the dialysis project. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Juwita Gupta and I'm the host of your program. I'm joining you today from the Accessible Media Studios in downtown Toronto. Today I'm in a grey and black sweater with a round neck and I am sitting in front of a white background. We're talking about something called the Dialysis Project, which is a one woman, which is one woman's account of administering dialysis procedures at home. I'm joined today by a researcher at Memorial University and the co-creator of the Dialysis Project, Leah Lewis. Leah, hello and welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, Joita. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. I know I can't do the Dialysis Project justice through any description that I might offer. So why don't you start out by telling me a little bit about what it actually is? Okay. The Dialysis Project is a... Um, is a project that that has developed over a very long time with um, my creative collaborators Evelyn Parry and Robert Chafe, and it grew out of um, a desire to gain agency and engagement from my own lived experience of being a dialysis patient myself. Now in my thirteenth year. Um, and I've been self-administering dialysis uh, for 11 uh, of those 13 years in my own home. And it's, um, it's definitely uh, a, an experience that uh, shapes identity and how we engage with the world and our relationships in the world, as it has done with my co-creators. So, um, you know, the seed of the Dialysis Project was planted many years ago. 
And it's been in development over years and was produced uh, last spring uh, digitally online uh, uh, through a live performance from my home, uh, from my own personal home where I administer my treatments. So the audience were able to witness that. And the reason for um, engaging in it was kind of twofold. One, it's, it's really, it was my own um, process kind of to kind of integrate and, and explore my own lived experience of grief and loss as it relates to my own illness and health. But also as a scholar um, in, uh, in health research, I was very interested in in giving uh, a louder voice to patients um, in terms of just kind of creating research that privileges patient voice of lived experience of complex uh, chronic conditions like kidney disease and dialysis procedure, and just really honoring the value uh, uh, and the knowledge that comes from that site of knowledge uh, that is different from many forms of health-based research, um, or I think it adds to the conversation in important ways. Mm. So that was another reason to really, um, to kind of create scholarship of lived experience about chronic illness and dialysis. If someone were to tune in to your performance of the dialysis project, in a nutshell, what would they see? Well, first and foremost, they would witness a live a performed procedure of hemodialysis, which, there, which is one of two forms of dialysis. And hemodialysis is the commonly, is the one that's known mostly, I think, through public knowledge, which is the form of dialysis that is a blood cleansing. Uh, that involves uh, a filtering and cleaning of the blood. And so the performance itself um, it demonstrates that in that I do administer a treatment during the performance. I start my treatment at the top of the performance, and then the treatment continues beyond the end of the performance because uh, my treatments are three to three and a half hours long, and I'm not going to ask an audience to sit with me for that long. Um, and then... Uh, secondarily, that's the first and foremost what the what the performance depicts, and then the narrative of uh, the performance is um, uh, monologues that really depict um, identity forming themes mm -hmm. uh, through the lens of chronic illness. Mm -hmm. And this yeah. is not a how to. It's not a demonstration of dialysis. It really goes no, beyond that. No, it's not. Right. It does. Yeah, it certainly does. I mean, we, we certainly, for the sake of the audience and knowing what the audience needs to know about what's happening in real time, it, there's definitely the, an explanation of what is happening that's embedded in the narrative. But the the majority of what's shared in the performance is are, is uh, personal autoethnographic stories that have evolved from my lived experience of dialysis uh, and really meant to kind of depict one example of what many, you know, what many dialysis patients live through um, 
And so it's kind of meant to shed light on the just the, the sheer kind of invisibility of dialysis um, in terms of regardless of whether patients are attending an outpatient unit or whether they're um, completing their, you know, completing home-based treatments, it's an unknown, despite how prolific it is in Canada and in Newfoundland and Labrador, where I live, um, it's a it's an unknown condition. People don't understand the complexity and the sheer amount of time that people who are on dialysis dedicate to maintaining their health and well-being via um, a machine, a medical machine for that procedure. And so there's some, you know, there are pieces of information that we wanted to mobilize into the public sphere so folks could really engage more with the reality of what it means to live uh, as a patient on dialysis. You know, I don't know if you heard, I let out a little gasp there in the middle of your answer. And the reason for that is um, you basically read my mind. And I said, wow, she's got superpowers. She can read minds. Um, I, wanted to ask you, <laughs> I wanted to ask you about why it is that because we know that dialysis is prevalent in our communities, it happens to a lot of people. Why is it that dialysis patients remain so invisible and why is so little known about the process? Well, I have my own opinions based on my understanding and knowledge of the condition. Uh, I think it is a complex chronic condition that most folks, especially folks like myself, who um, in a way my case is a bit of an outlier, many uh, patients who develop end-stage renal disease, uh, they develop it secondarily to conditions like um, diabetes, which is often a precursor to renal disease. Um, and I would be an outlier because I don't have diabetes and my renal failure occurred in infancy. Um, but I guess what we all kind of experience as dialysis patients is it's a chronic condition where health and, and lifestyle is maintained according to our dialysis treatments and, you know, dietary restrictions. And it's been around for so long and it, and it doesn't contain uh, it's it's not a terminal illness per se, even though there that it does kind of significantly shorten longevity, and there are folks who are quite sick on dialysis and don't are, are not able to last, and folks who are on dialysis have a shorter life uh, life length than folks who do receive a kidney transplant. Um, and I just think it's I'm not sure why. Maybe it's less. Um, uh, there's le there's less drama in a, a chronic condition that is maintained, but I'm not sure why the invisibility is there. Um, but it certainly is a condition that is not widely understood the same way other conditions are uh, exist more in the public sphere. Mm, like cancer, for example. I mean, there's a lot of fundraising that happens and a lot of public, a lot of visibility yeah. for cancer treatments. Not that, you know, one is worse or better than the other, but it certainly yeah, doesn't certainly have the same no. public. Yeah, it doesn't have the same public no. profile. Uh, you mentioned earlier that each of your dialysis treatments takes about three and a half hours and you wouldn't ask an audience to stay with you for three and a half hours. But perhaps you would want to maybe take the next few minutes to give us an idea about how, you know, in-home dialysis procedures impact your day-to-day -day life. 
Right. Uh, well, the first statement I can make is they are uh, completely and utterly time consuming. <laughs> um, necessarily so, of course. Um, as a home patient, I actually uh, perform more uh, actual procedural treatments than a patient who would attend an outpatient unit. And that in some ways, that's one of the advantages of being able to self-administer because I get a few more treatments per month than a unit treatment. And as a result, I feel better <laughs> and my functioning, my day-to-day -day functioning increases. But in terms of time, if I'm completing a three to a three and a half hour treatment every other day, when you calculate in the prep time and the dismantling time, it really is about five hours per uh, per treatment, and if you multiply that by four per week, uh, twenty hours of my week is dedicated to dialysis. Um, and I and that's my case. Other patients actually their prescription is for a longer treatment or more frequent treatments. Some some patients that are utilizing the same device that I use have to um, do five or six treatments a week in order to maintain uh, the level of um, clearance or, or health in terms of blood levels uh, that I would require. I just happen to be a small person and that um, so the amount of dialysis that I require versus somebody who might be larger than me and require more is is by we is every other day, whereas others may have to do six days a week. So the time consumption differs from case to case, um, but it certainly is something that you have no choice but to incorporate into your weekly schedule. Um, for folks who go to a unit, they have a much more rigid uh, schedule to to stick by. They you know their dialysis happens when it happens, and they have to show up. I have a little bit of flexibility whereby I can do my treatment earlier in the day or I can do two consecutive treatments so that I can go away for a weekend. Um, so there are different, uh, I have a little bit of flexibility and more autonomy than patients who attend out, outpatient units. And I think folks who decide to train to self-administer their treatments, that's the big reason why to regain back personal time and to increase uh, their sense of agency mm. and autonomy over their illness. And I think it does achieve that to the best uh, to, to the best it's able to, you know? Mm -hmm. Earlier in our conversation, you mentioned um, that it's not a terminal disease, but um, many kidney diseases do shorten your lifespan. What has your experience of dialysis and living with a chronic health condition uh, done in terms of your thoughts about uh, mortality, uh, grief around you know end of life, uh, coming to terms with uh, changed circumstances? Have you had a chance to think through some of those ideas? Not only have I had a chance to, but my doctoral dissertation is dedicated to uh, the notion of grief as it relates to transplant loss and engaging with dialysis as a patient who is what is called hypersensitized, which means that my blood levels, because I have had a transplant previously, because I've had kidney disease since infancy, um, my bloods have high severely high levels of antibodies, which makes it difficult for me to um, be matched for kidney transplant. 
So I'm a my case in particular uh, makes me very difficult to match. So I'm on multiple lists. Um, and the reality being, uh, given the uh, the state of organ donation in our country, is the likelihood that I will um, receive a match, while it isn't impossible, is quite unlikely. So what that has done to sort of my existential reflection has kind of forced me to accept the possibility that dialysis will be, um, you know, my companion for the rest of my life, uh, for the rest of my living life. And um, so I've certainly had to come up against, um, you know, reflections around mortality and life meaning as a result of uh, of that journey. And my doctoral film really looks at meaning, just the concept of like, how do you engage with life meaning in the face of complex chronic illness? And, uh, you know, in my case, given because I am, um, I've been on dialysis for so long, one of the issues that I face, and I'm not alone in this, I, lots of dialysis patients face the issue of struggling to maintain their dialysis site. And so being able to access hemodialysis is not something that uh, can happen overnight. There has to be a surgically formulated site, either through a port in the neck or something called a, uh, a graft or a fistula, which is a, a, a vascular, which requires vascular surgery in order to create a robust flow of blood enough to um, enough to sustain the dialysis treatments uh, so that it could be effective and have the cl the clearance outcomes that patients need in order to live their lives. Um, and But the thing about these dialysis sites is they don't, they have to be well cared for, but they don't last forever. And typically they will have a span of three to five years. And in my case in particular, which to be fair is unusual, I have, I'm on my second last site um, because I've used up all of my dialysis sites over time for a, a number of reasons. I'm a small person. I have low blood pressure. There's a number of variables that contribute to that. And so that's another kind of issue that I've had to kind of come up against and just accept as uh, the unknowns that come with these kinds of unexpected and uncertainties that are part of complex chronic illness, such as dialysis. Um, you can't really access dialysis um, with good outcomes without a healthy site, dialysis site, right, in your arm or in your leg or in your chest. Um, and in Canada, the, the site of choice is a fistula in the arm because it's less likely to produce infection. And, you know, there are folks whose fistulas don't last and they're relatively young, like myself, and then we end up kind of facing these kinds of complex decisions with our care teams to figure out how to extend the access to dialysis, right? So these are some of the issues that I've had to face that have really challenged my um, existential reflection and how I create meaning um, in my day-to-day. -day. How do I, you know, 
one, you know, the, my limited freedom, which is, I think, a major theme for a lot of dialysis patients. Travel is complex. It's a clunky process and it's expensive because you got to pay for treatments in other countries if you want to travel overseas. And, and it's many, you know, the hospitals across Canada are often at capacity. So if you want to travel to another unit in Canada, it's often, you know, there's often no room because dialysis is such a prolific condition in this country. So travel is limited and, and it's a difficult and, and challenging uh, process for many of us. Um, so for me, you know, my travel, I've chosen to travel very little, if at all, um, and instead kind of keep my travel within the bounds of my province um, until such a time that it gets a little bit easier. So, you know, these are all kind of, you know, facing the limitations of your of your life, but also getting the most out of it in terms of meaning and relationship. I think that's that, those have been the kind of tensions that I've faced. And you've got all this life experience to distill into a performance, which could be an hour, it could be an hour and a half. How did the act of comp of compressing or trying to tell a story about dialysis to an audience that had no prior experience? Because, I mean, the assumption is that some people will know about it, but the majority will not. That's right. Yeah. How did that process help you make meaning of dialysis? I think uh, part of it was the team. Um, so Robert Chafe, who uh, is a, a Canadian playwright and dramaturg based out of Newfoundland, um, is a dear friend and colleague. We've known one another a very long time. We met as teenagers and have been close friends ever since. And Evelyn Parry, who's also a theater practitioner, um, uh, really engages in critical forms of performance, um, anti-racist uh, and feminist styles of performance. And she was the artistic director at Buddies and Bad Times for some time. And she and I, uh, did our theater training together and are also um, both friends and colleagues. So the team coming together, we sort of had multiple, we were invested on multiple levels. First and foremost, to create an engaging and innovative and provocative piece of theater, but also to respect and honor the process of creating a piece of theater that was incorporating a medical procedure, which to our knowledge had never happened before. And of course, there were many challenges that occurred throughout the years, and it took years to formulate the piece. And the reason it took so long is my illness narrative shifted and changed over time. So what I just shared about the caveats that I've been facing with my dialysis site, that issue surfaced um, after the project, uh, the earlier stages of the project. So it did inform the writing and uh, the stakes uh, uh, that we were um, that we wanted to highlight uh, through the show. And so there was a fluidity and flexibility that became necessary over time um, as we uh, began to identify and select the narratives that I was writing. And I, there was loads and pages and pages and pages of writing um, that we started with. And what was curated and selected to be part of the piece were a selection of narratives that really came together to um, highlight the lived experience in 
the most uh, evocative and honest way we chose, but also incorporated the the stakes that come along with um, dealing with um, repeated urgent visits due to site blockages and, and a dialysis site not working. For somebody like me who's relatively young um, when compared to the rest of the dialysis population. Um, so it kind of took time for the pieces to fall into place. And it took time also for the creative roles uh, to fall into place. We started out as kind of being independent. I was going to write the piece, Evelyn was going to direct it, and Robert was going to facilitate through uh, dramatur his dramaturgical um, consultations. And where we ended up was we co-wrote the piece. Um, and so we really are a co-creative team from concept to the narratives that were utilized, to how dialysis is represented in the piece, to how dialysis is explained in the piece. That took a lot of, uh, of time and energy, deciding what needed to be there in terms of what the audience needed for, for explanation and what didn't need to be there because we didn't want to muddy the waters in terms of what our goals were for the piece. So it was really, it took much longer. I mean, I think our first meeting um workshop for the piece was in 2016 and then it was in may of 2021 that we ran the mm. piece and we are still and my colleagues at memorial and i are still collecting data and screening the piece for patients and nurses mm. so um it's been a long journey and probably will continue to evolve it only seems fair that in the last few minutes that we have left that you share a bit of an excerpt from the dialysis project. What would you like to share with us yes. today? Well, I've, I've selected a piece that is really about um, kind of hopes and dreams connected to the limited freedom that comes with the experience of dialysis. And it's a, it's a monologue about a flying dream. Sometimes I dream impossible things. A dream that's come and gone since I was four. I can fly. Eyes closed. One, two, three. I fill my lungs. They fill with ease. And they send a, a shot of energy through my body. I move my arms and my strength lifts my weight. And I can. Yes, I can. I can. With a running start, I leap and I'm airborne. And with only my will, I begin to float. A shriek of laughter. I'm surprised at my strength. My muscles are alive. My legs can work hard. I can rise higher and to a higher point, out the door, down the street, zipping past my pacing neighbor and local tomcat perched on the fence. I were past Holy Heart School and the skating arena with its year-round snow hill. I smile and I wave. What a beautiful day, isn't it? The wind is cold on my face, but the sun is warm on my body. I don't need a sweater or a jacket. The higher I climb, the stronger I feel. I fly downtown and bag on Robert's door. Come out, come fly with me. We make our way up Signal Hill. I show him how. The fall colors are glowing. We drop by Flora's house and we pull her out too. I make my rounds and I grab everyone and I make them float too because my power is so strong, I can just give it away. Willow and Dave and Roxy, Diana, Danielle, I gather them all and we go. We take flight together. We rise above the clouds and we laugh out loud at the vastness of it all. The treetops over Bannerman and Barring Parks, the rocky barrens, the berry pickers, the, the harsh vastness of the northern peninsula. We drop down and we pick up Dee Dee. 
The island of Newfoundland grows small and, and it falls away as we again gain a tremendous height. We fly to Montreal and to Toronto. We collect Evelyn and Caroline and Gerard, Melissa and Sherry. We head to New York and we perch on the crown of the Statue of Liberty. We sip on Americanos and nibble on soft pretzels. Then we head over to San Francisco and we visit the Golden Gate Bridge. We go to the Grand Canyon, the Great Wall of China, the pyramids, and I feel the crisp wind against my cheeks. That is so powerful. Um, I love the line about you know having so much power and giving it away, but it's especially poignant in light of your preceding discussion about some of the challenges around traveling. If uh, anyone wanted to uh, be a part of the audience and watch an upcoming performance of the Dialysis Project, how do they do that? Well, the performances now exist in a recorded format, which can be forwarded um, for, for folks viewing pleasure. It is a, a closed YouTube link that can only be accessed through invitation. Uh, so due to the complexity of what it takes to perform the dialysis project, uh, not that it'll never be performed again, but at the moment, the way it can be viewed is through an accessible recorded link. And if folks are interested, they can contact me at my memorial email. Mm -hmm. Can I provide that mm -hmm. online? It's leah.lewis, L-E-A-H dot L-E-W-I-S at mun dot C-A. That's M-U-N dot C-A. Leah, thank you so much for speaking to me about this. I have really learned a lot from our conversation and I appreciate your candor and your willingness to talk about something that we don't really think about a lot. So yeah. thank you very much for being on the program. And thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. Leah Lewis is the co-creator of the Dialysis Project and a researcher at Memorial University. We'll make sure you have, uh, we'll put the email address for Leah's Memorial University email address in the description so you can contact her if you'd like to access the YouTube recording of the Dialysis Project. That's all the time we have for today. Our videographer has been Matthew McGurk. Our technical producer is Marco Flalo, and Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio. If you'd like to provide any feedback, you can write to us at feedback at ami.ca, find us on Twitter at AMI-audio, use the hashtag PulseAMI, or give us a call and leave a voicemail at 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. And please don't forget to leave your permission to play the audio on the program. Thanks a lot for listening. Enjoy the rest of your day. 